Except it's not really Sparta. It's the Religious Studies Project. Why do you think I'm doing this uh, bad impression, Chris? Well, I think it might be something to do with um, the similarly bad accents that happened in that wonderful film 300. 300. This is our 300th episode. Well, our 300th numbered episode. We're actually past that. But nonetheless, officially, this is our 300th episode. Oh, that's really good that um, Dan Baker's um, and gets to be speaking to me as part of our uh, 300th episode. I'm just remembering as um, we're recording that there was a couple of things that I said I was going to clarify uh, before we started going. So let me go for it. Um, Dan wanted to say that he, he realized he'd made a mistake in this interview when I because I, I, I made him say... Uh, tell me about Dutch religious history, Dan. And he just sort of had to, had to give me a brief synopsis. So he wanted to point out that although he says that 25% of Dutch are religiously affiliated, he meant that as incorrect. He meant 25% are members of church congregations specifically. Mm-hmm. So that is just something to point out. Yeah, we spoke about um, spatial contestations and conversions. So it's basically about buildings and um, what happens to them when they change hands. Take it away, me. Listeners to the Religious Studies Project, particularly in a a European context, might be quite familiar with the sites of a former church building that has now turned derelict or is being used for a, a purpose that perhaps it wasn't intended for or is being rejuvenated by another religious community, another Christian community, and so on. That's certainly the case here in Edinburgh, um, where I did my doctoral work, and I'm joined today by Dan Bakers to discuss um, spatial contestations and conversions, particularly looking at former or different church buildings in the Dutch context. So first off, Dan, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) No problem, Dan. Dan is currently a postdoctoral research fellow here at the Institute for the Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. Before coming here, he was a postdoc researcher at the Department of Religious Studies in Utrecht where he was researching the abandonment and repurposing of church buildings, first with the Hira Project Iconic Religion, and then with Birgit Meyer's research program, Religious Matters in an Entangled World. And we'll hear about both of those presently. His doctoral dissertation was defended in 2015 at VU Amsterdam, involved doing a comparative ethnographic study of religious commitment among young Dutch Muslims and Christians. And he's currently completing a book manuscript based on this work. And his publications include the volume Straying from the Straight Path, How Senses of Failure Invigorate Lived Religion, published with Bergan. And he co-edited that with David Close. So, Dan, first off, let's... Let's maybe, before we hear about the Dutch context in general, it might help um, if you could maybe situate your work and the trajectory of it within those those two big research projects. I know I certainly know a lot about iconic religion through um, its, sort of U- its UK team, which involved mm-hmm. Kim Knott, who was my doctoral supervisor. Sure, so yeah. maybe just tell us a little bit about those projects. Sure, yeah. So iconic religion project started in 2014, and I joined that just... Well, actually, I would say just after my uh, completing my PhD thesis, but I, w- I was actually still completing it and, and joined that project. And that was a project on the visible presence of religion 
in urban space and specifically in Amsterdam, Berlin and London. The project was a cooperation between researchers of uh, Lancaster University, uh, which is where, uh, where Kim Not is still based, and then Utrecht University with Birgit Meyer and uh, Bochum University with Volkert Krech. And uh, so, yeah, it really focused on how people in their everyday lives encounter religion in a very tangible, visible uh, way. And I was coming from uh, doing my PhD thesis on religious youth, uh, so uh, young Muslims and Christians uh, in, in, a, in a Dutch secular society, uh, which actually very much focused on you know, religious commitment and, you know, in, in a sense, religious vitality. And I always kind of knew that there was not another side to the story of religion in, in the Netherlands, which is, of course, uh, rapid secularization and and, and uh, dropping uh, numbers of church attendance. And then I was no starting to notice all these buildings in the Netherlands, which are being closed down and converted for other purposes. So I kind of got more and more interested in this other side of the story. So what what happens to Christian culture or Christian material culture when church buildings are no longer being attended by by people? And so when I applied to this project to iconic religion, I argued in my in my research proposal, uh, well, you know, this project is on the visible presence of religion in the city. And I, I would actually argue that the transformation of church buildings is actually one of the most important changes in how religion is present or absent uh, in the city. So, yeah, that got me onto the project and I, I started that in Amsterdam. Excellent. And then what well, we'll hear now, I suppose, about your about the specific work that you did. But again, we've hinted at it there, but for the sake of our listeners who may not know anything about the, the Dutch context, could you maybe sort of... <laughs> Two minute sort of religion in the Netherlands, yeah, or, sure. particularly perhaps Amsterdam. Where yeah. So the Netherlands has sometimes been characterized as one of the most religious nations of Europe or one of the most Christianized nations of Europe. So religion was very important in Dutch history and for like the, the political uh, emancipation of you or independence of the Netherlands vis-a-vis -vis its former ruler Spain which was Catholic. So the Dutch, in their own perception, perception, liberated themselves from Spain and become became a Protestant uh, nation. So Protestant identity was very important uh, in the Netherlands uh, for quite some time. Catholicism and also what, what was seen as dissenting polit uh, Protestant groups were uh, given very little space to, to uh, observe their religion. Mm. And then you got the process of what is known in the Netherlands as pillarization. Mm. So the, the coming about of different pillars after the time Time, uh, after the French Re Revolution, when Catholics were ag again given the room to to practice their religion and to be to be to manifest themselves in public public space, you got this very this very strong mobilization of religious subcultures or pillars that were were really important in people's everyday lives. They really organize you know much of social life in terms of schools housing work uh, and so on so in that time religion was was very important in the netherlands and this actually was up to up to like the 1950s uh, and then as else elsewhere a rapid process of secularization uh, was was setting in uh, or unchurching as we say in dutch i think this is not mm. a very common word in, in english but I, I i like the term unchurching because it's more specific than secularization and there's of course a lot of debate about what you know whether what secularization is and mm -hmm. whether 
and to what extent it has taken place. So the Netherlands throne changed from being one of the most Christianized uh, nations of Europe to be, be to becoming one of the most de-Christianized ones with, as I said, a very uh, quick process of secularization and to the extent that today, you know, only about one-fourth of the population considers themselves Christian or religious, I should say. Mm. And only about half of them would actually attend religious uh, spaces on a the, on the regular basis. So it has become, in that sense, a very secular country today. Yes. And am I right in saying, is it is it is this an Amsterdam stat or a Dutch stat that two churches are closing per week? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a Dutch, yeah, yeah, a national. So this has been estimated. So hundreds of churches have have closed down in the in the last few decades. And so the and the state's agency of, of heritage of cultural heritage estimated that the rate of church closures will continue by around uh, two churches a week. But I've also been told by others, um, by uh, by another agency organization in, in the Netherlands, that this is actually, this should actually be four churches a week. It would actually be a more realistic mm. uh, estimate. So it's really an astonishing uh, space or speed by which these buildings are being closed down. Absolutely. So before we get into some of your specific case studies, I think when we first met to discuss this interview, one of the first things I wrote down is like, we'll have no essence questions, <laughs> which is sort of my critical RS hat wanting to emphasize that even by having this conversation, we're not saying that a building in itself is religious or that it is sacred or holy in any way what we're doing is we're looking at the ways in which the buildings are are interacted with and discursively constructed and the way they occupy space in this heritage discourse and in individual and community memories and so on you know so we want to make sure that we get that in there that you know the it's not inherently holy in that sense. But then also um, in one of the articles that you sent and I read through, um, you spoke about the difference between sort of theories in heritage and theories of heritage. Um, and that might be a useful thing yeah. to, to mention just before we go mm -hmm. into case study. Yeah, this is, uh, these are ter terms I think coined by, in an article by Waterton and Watson, Framing Theory, I think it's called the article. And... Um, so they, they distinguish between different kinds of, of theories about heritage. And, and one distinction that they make that I find helpful is that between uh, theories uh, in heritage and theories of heritage, what you see when you look at literature on Christian material culture, a lot of, a lot of that work, not all of it, obviously, but quite a, quite a bit of that work kind of asks, you know, what, how can we preserve this heritage for future generations. So what are the best practices in, in preserving this? Uh, what what threatens it and so on? So all these are questions which I think are very important, uh, but they are questions that are located within the heritage discourse. So mm -hmm. it's already taken for granted that these, this, these are important places of heritage. And a theory of heritage, as, as Watterton and Watson put it, would actually ask what makes these things heritage? Why are they defined as heritage and, and by whom? So there's a whole question of rep representation and discourse and mm. power relations and so on. So for, you know, for what purposes are they heritageized? A terrible word, yes. tongue twister. And also what new fault lines emerge in this process? Uh, so who's being left out? You know, so that's quite interesting work now being done in Christian heritage, which also talks about the ways in which 
populist politicians, for example, are now very apt at mobilizing, you know, Judeo-Christian heritage in their political discourses. Um, but, you know, to, in, in important ways, it's, it's also a, a discursive tool to exclude Muslims and, and migrants mm-hmm. and so on. So it's also a way of defining who's out. Yeah. So that would be more kind of a theory of heritage uh, yes. approach. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <clears throat> analyzing all these discourses that are invoking heritage, yeah. who's included and excluded, why certain things are thought to be worthy of preservation. For example, I'm thinking in my own work in Edinburgh, yes, there's plenty of the idea that all these churches, yes, they're part of the urban heritage, should be preserved, etc. But, well, first of all, what should they be preserved for? And we'll, we'll get on to that in, in your examples. There are certain uses that are seen as more or less appropriate. But also, there's a certain image of what a church is. And here in the south side of Edinburgh, we've got the Salvation Army over on um, St. Leonard's, or we've got the uh, the True Jesus Church down in Gifford Park, which have both been here for decades and decades. But they don't look like churches. Mm-hmm. In the popular yeah. imagination, mm-hmm. so they don't feature in anyone's idea of something that should be preserved, yeah. because there's a very specific thing mm-hmm. that yeah. looks like a church. Yeah, yeah, it should be preserved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. let's let's contextualize it a bit here. I think, and I think we're probably going to use two examples particularly. There's the the Fatu Mosque, and then I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right. Is that the Chasse Church? Chasse Church. Yeah, Chasse Church. Yeah. Um, and possibly starting with the Fatih Mosque might be mm. a, a good mm-hmm. example of the various discursive entanglements that are going on. So we tell us about it and, yeah, and sure. why it's interesting. Yeah, it, I was just thinking of the Fatih Mosque actually when you were making that point about church building being recognizable or not as churches. Because the Fatih Mosque is one of the biggest, largest mosques in, in Amsterdam that has been around for, for a few decades already. It was It opened in 1982. Uh, but it's located in a former Catholic church on uh, the Rosegracht in the center of Amsterdam, actually very near to the Anne Frank House, which many people um, mm-hmm. would know, uh, and the Wester Church. Well, yeah. I presume I've seen it actually when I was in Amsterdam, but I didn't. Well, that's but an, I didn't notice it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's the. Well, and people actually even uh, often don't notice the church, even though it's 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 you know quite a big monumental church. But I think uh, many people are very much focused on the Wester Church, which is like the the main Protestant church right next to the Anne Frank House, and kind of the Rosegracht. The street is kind of a, uh, a, a street that people quickly pass through. So somehow. When when I talk to my friends and family in Amsterdam, they often don't you know don't even know this church. Sometimes they do, and but they almost none of them would know that there is a mosque in that church right now. Mm. And that's actually also uh, an issue that the mosque community is facing at the moment. So I've I've written an article together with my Utrecht-based colleague Poyan Tamimi Arab for uh, a special issue on iconic religion in the journal Material Religion. And, uh, there we also showed how the, the mosque community, especially its younger members, are struggling with this image of being a kind of a hidden mosque. Hmm. And it's actually this very term hidden mosque that, that is often used, uh, by people, by visitors to the mosque, for example, also by non-Muslim visitors, uh, po- local politicians and so on. And that's actually one of the points we make in that article that this, uh, it's interesting that this term is used, uh, the, 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 the notion of a hidden house of worship, because it's actually, uh, a historical discursive genre in, in Dutch 
religious history which was used in that time that i referred to earlier when um, catholics catholics were not allowed to publicly worship so they had to resort to clandestine uh, churches often on attics or yeah and these were called hidden churches but why is it so hidden then i mean right about something to do with the entrance particularly um you know yeah. like, there's no signage so you know why yeah. is it so hidden how does that make i guess you've mentioned the young people sort of constructing it in that way how, how do the users of the mosque feel and, and how are they are they trying to combat that image mm. now i think yeah so it's hidden it's, it's quite interesting so i mean so this has to do with the material material leg- legacy of the church building so the very fact that there are located in a church means that you know they they are uh not very recognizable as a mosque uh, there's, a, there's a mosque here nearby also in a, in a church building that few people would realize or recognize as such uh another important point is uh that it has to do with a kind of mismatch between a muslim sacred space and the way in which this particular building was organized so when when uh, this muslim community uh, constructed their mosque within this building it turned out quite quickly that you know the direction of prayer in islam the qibla was precisely in the opposite direction to the direction in which the catholics had prayed so mm-hmm. normally you would come into the church through the entrance and that you know you would face you know, the altar and pray mm-hmm. in the direction of the altar uh, and in this case this was uh, facing the west so what the Muslim community did or, or had to do was to construct, uh, to close down the entrance basically, to construct a wall there where, which would become their, you know, uh, their, their uh, prayer wall as it were and, mm-hmm. and, and the side of, uh, the prayer niche. Uh, and they, and they constructed a very small entrance on the side. And what was the former entrance of the church became uh, a space for shops. So at the moment, there's actually a bike shop there. So when you pass this building, uh, you know, the first thing you see is a bike shop. And, and it, it is quite difficult to, to, to actually realize that, that there is a mosque here. So what this community is doing uh, is they're currently in the process of, of building a new entrance in order to become uh, more visible mm-hmm. uh, as a mosque. Yeah. yeah. And one interesting thing in this respect, perhaps, is also that in a way it's also a story about history repeating itself, uh, because on this very site there once was, uh, before the Catholics built built their church there, there was uh, a headquarters of uh, an important socialist movement in in the Netherlands, and that was first converted into so that site was first converted into a chapel uh, by uh, by Jesuits. Catholic Jesuits, but they were facing similar problems as the Muslims are facing now. They kind of felt, you know, as one Catholic author in that time, so this is the early 20th century, as one one Catholic author said, you know, this it, it, this place remains the theater of socialists, and you know, where uh, we have our altar, but we know this this was once the stage in from which the socialist leaders would give their give their um, mm. Not sermons, give lectures, their lectures and, and their political rallies. And, um, you know, and they, one of the only things that would mark out the space as Catholic was that they placed a big cross on the top. Yeah. Uh, you know, and similarly for a mosque now, you know, one of the only things that marks it out as a mosque is that they placed crescents on top of the church, you know. Yeah. So there's this, uh, small things that, that mark out the space, uh, hmm. as religious, but also a struggle with people that, you know, conversion is never really complete. 
Yes. Right. So people always struggle or very often struggle in a converted space with, uh, you know, what I've also called sacred residue, some kind of leftover of its previous use, mm. which might enable, you know, which might make certain things possible, but it also constrains particular uses, yes. usage or representations of the space. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And some of that might be material presence, mm -hmm. sort of material evidence in a sense, and some of it might be discursive and um, yeah. remembered. You know, if, if I were to go in there, I may not know anything about its socialist history, but I would probably be able to detect the mosque and the, the, the Catholic church, you know, but again, that shows the importance of historical context and lived exactly. memory of the space yeah. as mm -hmm. well. So while sticking with a former Catholic church then, um, the, the, the Chassis church gives some really good illustrations of, of how this notion of heritage is mobilized or contested by, by a variety of different mm -hmm. constituencies. Mm -hmm. yeah. Perhaps again, you could just in introduce that specific case study, yeah. but then also all the different groups who have a stake in it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this Chasse Church was also a Catholic church from s around the same time as the the one I've just talked about. So they were both built in the 1920s, and they they both actually had a relatively short life. So the Chasse Church uh, closed down in 1997 uh, because of dwindling attendance, uh, and then it was actually uh, desolate for for many years. It's, it was d dilapidating. Um, the building wasn't doing very well. Uh, and there was a lot of conflict around what should happen to the building. And what's very fascinating in this case is that when it closed down in, in the late 90s, uh, both the municipality and the Catholic Church, or the, the, the diocese and the local parish, actually decided to demolish the building. They mm -hmm. said, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult to reuse the space in, 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 in a, a productive or an efficient way it also doesn't really have any kind of special heritage qualities and you know also not unimportantly it will get us more money if we demolish it and sell the land and the catholic church very much needed this money because they had to renovate another church in that neighborhood that was going to be their main catholic church paris church uh, but then uh, local residents who were themselves not church going started to, 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 to mobilize themselves and to very much advocate for the preservation of this, of this church building. So you have this really interesting debate between, uh, basically between local, a local Catholic organization that says, you know, we can, 
get rid of this building. We don't need it in, uh, anymore, and it's not going to be you know helpful to 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 leave it there. And local people who are not part of that community will actually stand up for to you yeah. know to save uh, quote unquote that's that space. And people who probably didn't particularly care about it when it wasn't being threatened it yeah. was uh, just a part of the exactly yeah their familiar urban environment exactly. and then i guess when this yeah. moment happened where it was potentially gonna be threatened then yeah that's a very interesting point that's you know it's, it, it's interesting to see how you know people suddenly become aware of these kind of iconic sites uh uh when they're threatened to to disappear really hmm. so then in this case you you see uh a different uh, quite different positions so you know trying to make sense of this you know this paradox if you will so you know between local people who you might describe as non-religious who want to you know safeguard this this building and catholics who want to uh demolish it try to make sense of that um you know I, i've i've conducted field work there and talked to many different groups involved and, and what i kind of found is that you know people uh, ascribe quite different values to to a site like like a church building. So for many people, they would say, "Okay, this is more than a building, right?" So this is kind of a mantra that you very, hear very mm -hmm. often in these discussions. But what they mean by this mantra, "This is more than a building," is very different for different parties in, involved. Yes. So for kind of the parish leadership and 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 the officials at the at the diocese uh, or the, the religious leaders there you know they would say they would say you know a church is a house of god you know so the, it is a very important uh, religious uh, meaning it's a sacred place it's consecrated and sure we you know it it when it's when it's closed down it is deconsecrated but you know in the memories of people it always remains associated with something sacred so it, it is very difficult to remove this kind of aura of sacredness from from a catholic church so that's really you know a strong so that they kind of see the church as, as a house of god really if you look if you talk with uh, the local parishioners or the members of the community they would often share this 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 view they would often say yes you know it's an important religious space sacred uh, uh, a place of god struck me is that for them it's also very importantly uh, about community mm -hmm. you know so a place of a local community coming together uh, a very familiar place that is imbued with with local uh, histories but also our personal memories and so on so it's a very yeah it's really uh, a communal place in, in that sense uh, and people have all kinds of very intimate personal memories of church buildings and they they went through very important personal life uh events there right yeah. baptism uh, weddings and so on and then i talked to these local uh so so these these parishioners it's maybe also good to say so the ones i mean this is quite a long time ago but was i managed to find a few of them who were still around and they said you know at the time we were quite okay with the idea of demolishing the church because for us also like one of them said you know when i go go back to the church now and it has been i don't know if we noted we we mentioned this but it has been converted to a dance studio yeah <laughs> um, <Important. laughs> so it's now a dance studio and she said like if we go if i'm back there now you know i i really it really feels uncanny you know it it feels it's no longer a church it's no longer what it was in my memories and uh and it's still it is still it is still connected to many of her memories, so it's, it's still a very important place for her. But 
it is no longer what it once was. So it's yeah. kind of a disorienting kind of uh, experience for her. And then you have, so they were happy, but then the local residents who were very unhappy about the idea of demolishing the church, for them, it's very much a place of um, uh, uh, local belonging. So a place that makes them feel at home uh, in their neighborhoods. Uh, and especially after it was converted, you, you see that many of these local residents are very happy about the way in which the the converted church building as a as a dance use brings back life to the neighborhood and yeah. a sense of community and belonging and, and so on. Mm. So what I found very interesting here is that whereas for many parishioners, kind of the closing down of the church represents a loss of their home, for these people it actually indicates uh, a return of a home or yeah. like something that helps them to feel at home uh, in their neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I found, again, non church attending individuals in the south side here talking about well for instance the south side community center which was the former nicholson street church and it was a a carpet storage place for a while and, and now it's a community center so mm -hmm. i heard time and again the idea of um i didn't like it being a carpet showroom that now it's a useful place or someone else said i really like that it's sort of being used for what it was built for mm -hmm. for the community mm -hmm. and again these are people who yeah. weren't participating in it when it was a religious mm -hmm. place or yeah. quote unquote religious but now yeah. that it's being it's fulfilling some sort of model of the ideal this is what religion or christianity is meant to be right yeah sort. yeah and this is actually it's, a, it's, it's interesting that you say that because it's a very same point that the owner of the dance studios uh makes time and time again that you know by by giving it his new purpose he's actually bringing back the building to its original purpose which is of bringing people together yeah but of course it was bringing to people together before god right for a very particular purpose of worship you know and that part is you know in that sense left out exactly. even though that guy the owner i should say is is quite um spiritually inclined and, and interested in religion but then you have and that's maybe an important point to make other local residents who you know and in a sense that's like a fourth group giving a particular meaning to the building who very much emphasized the way in which that church building is a very important part of dutch religious history and, and symbolizes mm. dutch history uh, so and, and actually the spokesperson of the local committee advocating the preservation of the church uh, very often made this point um, and you know and said you know if you if you demolish these buildings you actually demolish your history what what I found interesting in that case is that he, you know, these people actually said, you know, this spokesperson and like-minded people, they didn't they didn't really care that much about what happened to the building, right? They said, you know, you know, what of course as long as it's not giving them too much, you know, nuisance in terms of like parking space yes. problems and that kind yeah. of debate but they didn't really care whether it would be repurposed for religious use or for for secular <clears throat> use or, but they said as long as the building is preserved because that building is important for who we are for our identity so you, there you get more of a uh, christianity as cultural heritage yes. uh, discourse yeah exactly. but which is often kind of propagated by people like like the ones in this case who quite explicitly distance themselves from christian beliefs and doctrines and so on so they're often quite self-conscious you know self-consciously secularized people who are nonetheless very uh, passionate about the importance of Christianity 
as culture, as history, uh, as art and identity and so on. Yes. Mm. So, yeah, there we have those sort of four constituencies, the institutional church, the parishioners, the former parishioners, the, the local residents, maybe non-participating residents, and then this whole sort of heritage yeah. um, industry, historians, mm. that kind of thing. And you can see how these different discourses they could maybe even use the same language, um, but mm -hmm. they could be mobilized for quite different purposes, positive or negative, depending yeah. how you want to inflect it. Yeah. We're already pretty much out of time here, um, and I know that we could talk on a lot more, but we'll certainly direct listeners to to you have an excellent blog post which summarize, summarizes a lot of this um, and your material religion article and then hopefully some more will be coming mm -hmm. out but i just wanted to to finish with the final couple of questions that we, we've been talking around this we've been talking about former churches churches and we should also say that sometimes there'll be a church that's then used by a, a another christian group as sure. well yeah, yeah that definitely. hasn't really come up at all yeah, yet. yeah. um very often yeah would we find this same sort of processes happening if we were looking at buildings that that weren't churches like mm -hmm. just sort of other prominent local buildings or, or does that question even make any any sense mm -hmm. uh, is there something to do with these being churches that has meant that they are given their sort of iconic status mm -hmm. or, um, so yeah. it, is there anything inherently religious here yeah. I, I know the answers <laughs> I know yeah. the answer before I in get parts, it, in parts yeah, yeah. <laughs> partly yes partly no um yeah, so I think you see you see similar things happening with you know non-religious sites, you know old post offices, water towers, and, and these kinds of sites, which are often also very important local landmarks, and you know often inspire the same kind of local concerns about maintenance and preservation and local. You know these places belong to who we are, to our identity as a neighborhood. But at the same time, I do think there is something. You know, it's always kind of a bit risky when you talk about it because you get to this kind of there's something ex extra yeah. to these buildings but in the way the pe people talk about it so if you look at people's narratives and ways in which they relate to these buildings uh, you know people also often have this kind of idea of a sacredness associated with these church buildings or you know as, as one local resident in, said to me in relation to the Sassay church uh, a few years ago, uh, the clock was restored to the, to the tower. Uh, it had been silent for, for a few years and it had, had been restored now. And he said to me, uh, now I feel that the soul of the neighborhood is back. So there seems to be this kind of sense, a uh, kind of spiritual or religious side mm. uh, to these buildings that is important for the way in which people uh, relate to them. But also, I think especially when you look at today's debates about heritage, this religious aspect is also very important. And this really marks these places out, like, or sets them apart from, for example, old post offices. Yes. You know, the fact that, um, so church buildings really lent themselves to this kind of idea that, you know, these sites are, you know, as part of our religious heritage, they are very important to our identity and to who we are, you know, as Dutch people, as European people, as, you know, British or Scottish people. And I think that's an interesting uh, shift also maybe that's happening now in our kind of post-secular age, if you want, that, that you know... Uh, Kind of this move from people kind of complaining a lot about churches and taking a lot of distance from from religion 
to kind of reappraising religion, but in, in very particular ways. So in mm-hmm. ways that are, that, that emphasize history, art, culture, and heritage. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so there's a, there's a sort of lingering insider discourse, I suppose, on, on the sacrality and on the sort of import of the buildings, but then also in these urban spaces in Western Europe, um, it is going to be churches that were given prominent spaces. They were intentionally built to be um, eye-catching and dominating the skyline mm-hmm. and the centers of communities. So is mm-hmm. it any wonder that when we do look for sites where there are a lot of discursive contestations happening, it, it probably is going to end up being these places, regardless of any sui generis argument about them having some inherent quality. It's mm-hmm. Historically, they've been prominent yeah. um, due to the specificities yeah. for you um you're 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 writing up the your book yeah the so, net, so yeah so i'm actually at the moment i'm i'm very much working on my my older project in a way which is still i mean which is still also my current project so on on uh comparison of muslims and christians in in the netherlands trying to finish my uh, book manuscript now uh, also working on on a special issue on on this topic and I'm hoping in the future, perhaps here in Scotland, to kind of uh, kind of converge these two projects together. That's that's kind of my my hope and my aspiration. So to um, really connect this study of of what happens to Christian material culture to uh, questions about religious pluralism and relationships between um, Muslims and Christians, uh, religious coexistence, uh, and so on. So to, so in a way, that's also already what I was doing in the case of the Fatih Mosque in Amsterdam, yes. but expanding a bit on, on that. And um, yeah, to, to kind of see if we could... Or if I could use uh, questions of heritage as a as a lens to look into religious diversity and and coexistence. Fantastic. Well, Dan Bakers, we look forward to the fruits of that research thank when you. it emerges. And thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for that really uh, really interesting conversation there. Um, I I'm wondering whether. We've had, have we had Kim not on talking about spatial? We have. Indeed. Because you said, you know, on, you know, uh, you were talking about hands at the beginning there. And, oh, you know, yeah. And that's her model is she uses a hand to uh, discuss spatial models as well. So it's, go and check that out if, if you yeah, need Yeah, that was one of our first year batch of interviews. That was before she was my PhD supervisor. Wow. And she, and we've then been through that whole process. Right. And Dan was her postdoc on the Iconic Religion Project. So that's what a lot um, of we were just talking about there. Very good. So if you would like to charm uh, a major scholar into becoming your PhD supervisor, why don't you consider becoming an interviewer for the RSP? We're looking for some new people. We do it every year. We like to bring on a few new interviewers, new respondents, sometimes move around the editorial team every year. Um, So if you would be interested in maybe doing a couple of interviews for the RSP, drop us a line at editors at religiousstudiesproject.com or, you know, tweet at us or whatever. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll get the process going from there. Absolutely. Next week, we're throwing in a bit of bonus content for you. Um, We've been mentioning all year that we've been producing these extra 
episodes for our patreon subscribers so this month we thought that we'd be kind to all of you who uh, maybe don't yet subscribe via patreon or don't have an institutional subscription and we're giving you an episode of rsp discourse the june discourse episode um that's got brianne fallon ray radford and carol cusack and our patreon uh, subscribers get an episode of discourse every month covering current affairs they also get um, irregular episodes of are you my data which are more uh, listener driven interviews with major scholars the last one there was with Anne Taves just a couple of weeks ago really entertaining I thoroughly enjoyed it yeah yeah um, these are partly we're throwing one of these onto the feed as well because we're proud of these different formats we uh, we came up with and actually you know, we quite, we quite like them. So we thought you might enjoy hearing one as well. Um, but if you're a, a Patreon subscriber, a BASR member, an NAASR member, then you also get, um, access to these episodes. So please do uh, check them out. And I think that's us for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.